As Mahatma Gandhi said, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. Most of you listening today have a growth mindset, an insatiable interest in learning continuously. And that's what today is about, about consolidating that learning. I'm gonna talk about learning through stillness, learning in extreme environments from different people, from different cultures, creating courage to explore and learn new things. So really, what is it about how we can become a better learner? Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome back, everyone. Sitting here beside David. David, how are you? Good, yeah. Looking forward to dipping into another Reflections episode. We always really enjoy these, Carol, don't we? Yeah, we've looked back over the last 12 episodes. That's three months of episodes. We were told early on, you have to look back, you have to learn from what you're doing. And that's very much the theme of what we're talking about today. There'll be loads in this. Going to obviously be giving you lots of content, lots of practical tools, lots of insights, lots of wisdom from our international guests. So we really do hope you get an awful lot from it. So speaking of the guests, who are they, David? So coming up, we have Mike Brown, international rugby player. We've got Fiona Brennan, the hypnotherapist and anxiety expert. Then there's John O'Regan, ultra runner. And then Cody Royal, coach and best-selling author. Touching on, of course, we want you to get another contract. But besides that, and besides the pitch, you're doing some other things and learning from that as well as the experience you've experienced with Newcastle and, and now this little transition what is it about these other pieces that you're learning that really you're finding quite interesting? I think I've always had interest in, in high-performance sports and how they tick and how they build their programs and especially the ones that, you know, sustain success for long periods of time and individuals that do that as well. I've always had an interest in that and been a fan, I guess, of teams and individuals that are able to do that and what makes them tick. And I think, especially the last few years, trying to delve into, this, I guess, the specifics of of culture and running programs and running organisations and find myself sitting back sometimes, you know, the last couple of years thinking, oh, if I was in, in charge, I'd, you know, I want to treat the player this way or I want to treat the group of players this way or how, I wonder why they're doing this. Maybe they could do it this way. And thinking, trying to also reflect on loads of stuff through my career and, and trying to, like, think what are the good bits what are the bad bits or oh, I wouldn't do that if I had a chance to to lead or I would do that or I'd take this off someone individually you know for example Conor O'Shea who, who I'm sure you guys know being a fellow Irishman you know probably one of the best leaders um off field leaders that I've ever had just the way he galvanized a group to a, a shared goal and sort of mission and vision and that's us as players but also the rest of the club the board the CEO Everyone bought into what he bought into the, to the club when he first started. You know, our playing identity, what we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve. Going back to the contract situation, my contract was actually up when he first joined Quinns, but he hadn't even started his um, job at Quinns. But he came in probably three months, four months before he officially started at Quinns just to sit down with me and tell me about his vision, his goal for the club, what he wanted to achieve, what he wanted me to achieve as an individual and it was a no-brainer for me. He had me bought in massively um, to what he was about and everything he kind of promised, we went on to do as a group and individually. So 
yeah, he's a, he's a great example of someone I've learned and taken a lot from. I've seen you mentioned um, consistent behaviours and persistence being so important to get to the high levels. How are you applying that to academic life, to masters, and working mm. maybe with different people from different sports and visiting places like um, St. George's with the FA? Yeah, exa- exactly that. Like I, I've tried to throw myself into the transition stuff like I've done my career. I can't remember who who um, recommended it to be like that, um, but I've just took that on board and that's what I've tried to do with my academics, you know, with my, my uni work and stuff like that. Exactly the same, making sure I prepare for, for the assignments and then um, in the right way, because I know that if I don't prepare the right way, my assignment won't be up to to a standard, especially being someone that hasn't had academic experience like uni or something like that since I was sixth form at 18, which is a good long time ago. <laughs> uh, now I'm 36. So, um, yeah, I have to kind of put the effort in and I'm kind of learning as I go along, even think little things, how to write properly, how to use a computer, how to read properly, how to take the right information in during a lecture. Um, I remember my first lecture start of the academic year I was literally trying to take all the information in scrambling to write notes and I just came over like oh my god this this is too much and then I kind of realized now you need to take the bits that are important to you you know kind of filter it out um, as much as you can you know kind of look at the assignment that's coming up at the start of the unit uh, instead of middle to the end because then you know exactly what you need to learn more than other stuff and what's going to be relevant for your assignment and things like that. So yeah, I've just tried to throw in, throw myself into it. Like I do uh, my rugby and kind of become obsessed with all, it all really. That's kind of a, a, a word I'd use for my rugby career, obsessive with certain things. If I don't do certain things in terms of my rugby, you know, you feel like, Oh my God, I need to do that. I can't not do it. And then you just find a way to do it. It's the same with this stuff. Really. I know I need to get into environments to experience certain things because I haven't, yet done it as a career I know I need to do th- certain things for my uni to make sure it's a, a good standard because I'm desperate to pass I'm obsessed to pass because I know it's going to lead to to good things later on so yeah that's just the way I'm trying to try and go about it to be honest one of my MBA I think I, we'd actually looked at your classmates and looked through the the course itself it's so diverse with different people coming from all backgrounds have you learned anything unexpected that you were like, I never even thought about how the NBA do it that way, how Man City women's team do it this way, Liverpool, etc. I'm not unexpected, really. You learn, like, just looking at my peer learning groups, you get split into to, to learning groups to really um, help and support each other. Um, and just looking at my peer learning groups, so I've got a, a lady on there from uh, Man City women's, just learning about, she's in like the, the, the operation side so just learning how they get the team ready what she, she does on our day-to-day to to help achieve that which is good learning for me if I want to then lead you know someone that's helping the team in terms of the operations and the management side of that um, or there's a guy that works at Rangers Craig just the way he he's like he's really quiet and reserved but like the way he he then has listened so well that he's able to ask such a good question. And you're like, geez, how's he come up with that question? That's an unbelievable question. <laughs> I don't have any examples off the top of my head, but like the amount of times I've sat there in a group discussion and the other guys as well. And you think, fuck, that's a good question. <laughs> like he must listen. Like he must, first, he must listen so well to what everyone's saying and taking like taking so well the information. 
but then to come up with a question the way he does like just just learning that from him or observing someone do that makes you realize how important listening and asking good questions are because it creates good, great discussion for the rest of us just little things like that and just having conversations another guy that's just moved to man united he he's in he's his work's kind of on the diversity and, and inclusion side of, of things just listen to him um he puts he he used to be a consultant to put reports together for Premier League clubs. Now he does that for Man United, but just the way he puts reports together, how he how he looks at diversity and inclusion, which is so important for for teams nowadays to function. I'm sure everyone will agree with that. And also, actually hearing about their backgrounds and their lives coming up hmm. um, is is also uh, eye opening and really important and, and great learning for me as well because they're all from different walks of life. They've, They've um, experienced different things. They've come through their pathways diff- very differently as well to, to the roles that they've got to. And they're actually working in, in roles at the moment. So for me, who's never kind of worked in a normal job, <laughs> a professional athlete, to be around people that are actually in, in those roles in elite sport, living it day to day is huge learning for me as well. And actually um, that peer learning group, in terms of support and guidance for someone that's not very academic one and hasn't had anything um, um, in terms of experiencing anything academic for a long time, they've been a great support and guidance for me to lean on, um, which has been a huge help, um, which shows the character of people they are, I guess. Modalities. But in essence, it's all one, if you like. So whether I'm sitting in here, as you can see in my clinic with a with a client or I'm working on a retreat or I'm writing um, an article or a book, it's all coming from the same source. And that is really created through stillness. And I believe that our creativity emerges when we have space between our thoughts. So I do a lot of work, if you like, in creating stillness so that I can actually contribute to the level that I do. It's interesting. We had Cal Newport on. He spoke about the hyperactive hive mind and people who feel like they're on the go and they're jumping from task to task. And actually his big focus now is slow productivity and sort of focusing on doing one thing really well and getting deep into it. And I think that stillness piece and what we talk about a lot is presence being present in the moment when you're on this podcast, for example, rather than jumping between maybe three different strands, four different things that you have on for the rest of the day. How do you bring yourself back to the moment if you jump off, if your mind just wanders that little bit? Well, it's it's a it's really a training, Kieran, and it's it's one I would say that is a lifelong training in terms of the mind will jump, you know, and the acceptance that the mind is going to jump is transformative in itself because once you're at peace with the idea that your mind is jumping you're not fighting with it and we want to come from a place of peace we don't want to be fighting with our own minds and we don't want to be fighting with reality and you know so many people are doing both so there's an internal conflict if you like in in the sense of how they feel about themselves or the thoughts the feelings that they are having and then also there is a conflict with reality not being as they had maybe desired or planned for it to be. So our ability to to really practice uh, stillness, transcending into acceptance 
is where we we start to actually fall in love with life as opposed to at war with it because we're now dancing with what is we're accepting what is and that's where you know you, you have so much peace you have so much uh, ability to to create and I really truly believe that ideas come when we have that stillness that's when the most inspiring ideas emerge like booking Kelly's hotel <laughs> sorry that's that's that was before our chat so I, I was just gonna apologies. say that was really powerful stuff <laughs> there go I was having a moment you were having a moment and then I, I brought it all back I down was. I was Fiona, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago the chair and you pointed to it for all of you watching the video. What, what, what's, what's the day-to-day -day like there? What, what, what happens in the chair, Fiona? Usually clients will come through my door. Um, the first time they come through the door, there's a lot of expectation. There can be a lot of pressure in terms of what they want from me if you like that they may have been waiting quite a long time for this appointment there is going to be usually a, a high level of emotion and as I say expectation and a desire that somehow that when they walk through that door I'm going to take a part of them out of themselves and that they'll be rid of that part that they don't like okay so let's say it's anxiety and that that is actually what I, I specialize in it's something I understand personally and professionally so when someone is feeling anxious it is so challenging it's so difficult physically and mentally and emotionally it's very debilitating so it's understandable that when they come through that door the door right here they they would like that to be removed almost like as it you know as an ingrown toenail and if you could just get rid of that then I'm going to be okay and so a lot of my work is actually helping them to realize that I'm not going to do that, that even if I could, it's not something I would desire to do because this part of them that they find so difficult, this anxious part is actually very important in terms of learning about themselves. And rather than escape from it, rather than get rid of it, we want to do the opposite. We want to embrace it we want to we want to bring it into the room I welcome that part like I feel genuinely honored that I get to to see the parts of people that they're hiding from the world I get to see the vulnerable parts of people that they're so ashamed of you know whether it's um a family ashamed of their family ashamed of their past ashamed of um not being good enough they show me, you know, and, and that's all about the relationship that I develop with them to help a sense of trust is that they gently and slowly will emerge this part that they have been most likely suppressing um, or escaping, distracting themselves from whether it's through, you know, any of the mind numbing activities that we we all engage in from time to time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. David's just there on his phone. Um, will you pay attention? Write notes. I hope so. Um, yeah. So the point is that this part is really a like the shadow part, if you like, that we want to understand and we want to love. We want to actually really learn more from them. They have a lot of wisdom uh, to help us in the world, and they have been there for a long time. So it's not about getting rid of a part of ourselves but it's actually about transforming a part of ourselves back into presence back into that oneness back into that place of peace where we're able to accept and love 
the most difficult parts of ourselves. Curious about the work you do for people maybe that aren't proud or comfortable with a response they might have made to something that happened in the past. And maybe that's still lingering and it's causing anxiety or distress. What is it maybe about your your process or your philosophy that could help with people try to navigate through that and move forward and not let it linger? Okay, so do you mean like, David, are you talking about regrets, like to have a regret of how they might have behaved in some way? Is that what you're, yeah, you're saying? Yeah, like regret or maybe, yeah, I could have shame could have approached that in a different way, maybe now having thought about it a little bit more. You know, those sort of examples, they'd come into our world quite a lot in the okay. sports medicine yeah. world, definitely. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and absolutely, I can, you know, see that also in, in my work in terms I, of I should have maybe done that. And then maybe I wouldn't have got injured. As exactly. Example. Yeah. Being hard on themselves over over yeah, something. My fault. Right. You, we, we hear that a lot. Okay. So, so what we're talking about there is people blaming themselves, right. And yeah. being hard on themselves, being very judgmental towards themselves. So, what I would say that the most powerful thing to to practice is self-compassion, because that will then allow that person to move on in in a sense of realizing that that we all make mistakes. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. That it's normal um, to 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 regret something is is again an opportunity to learn. Right. So if we if we don't actually spend the time. Uh, examining it you know the unexamined life is not worth living for example if we don't take that moment and say well what was it there and and you know the truth is maybe you could have done something better right so you're being accountable for that but there's a difference between being accountable for your behavior and then wallowing in self-pity and being hard on yourself because you're more likely then to actually repeat that mistake the next time because you're now coming from a place of deficit you're coming from a place of self-blame even self-loathing um and nothing you know when you think about that how is anything going to really transform when you're in a, such a negative state of mind so learning from it being compassionate to yourself self-compassion is a skill we have to learn it's not it, do, we're, it doesn't come organically we're not taught it at school in, in fact you know if anything we're almost taught the opposite that it there's a shame there of of you know being kind to ourselves we're taught to be kind to others but we know that to truly be authentically kind to others we have to be kind to ourselves um so those are pointers they're opportunities again to learn i think there's so much value in that for even young parents listening that are trying to you know work you know build a business as it were or do what they can in that world but also be, be, a, be a husband, be a wife, be a partner, you know, all that sort of thing. When you're trying to do your best with it all, sometimes even just saying, I, I've, I'm not always going to get it right all the time, not to beat yourself up. I think there's an awful lot of. Oh, 100%. You, you're not going to get it right. Uh, most. And what, what does that even mean? You know, question, what does getting it right mean? It's like you're once you're doing your best and our best changes, our best is contextual, isn't it? You know, your best today might be better than tomorrow because maybe you slept better maybe you um you know uh didn't have as many challenges that came your way so so whatever it is it's it's putting things in, into context and being kind to ourselves for that and saying yeah you know what i am tired today you know i've I, i've been lying on my lo- lounger all day and i'm exhausted <laughs> <laughs> i spun that last week yeah <laughs> 
Good I'm just, on you, Kieran. Yeah, I'm just thinking about this building into it. Sometimes the challenge with probably showing self-compassion and maybe getting over and learning from a regret or a mistake is that we ruminate because we don't think we're going to get the opportunity to, to maybe carry out the task again or whatever it is that has caused us. So we just think into professional sport or anything like that. Players might feel that if they lost the final and they have done something wrong, that they will ruminate on that thought and they'll struggle to learn the lessons because they won't feel like the opportunity is going to come again. Is there anything to be said or what advice could you give for someone to look forward with maybe optimism? There will be another chance to correct this wrong or to right the error that you've made. I suppose it's likely what I said in terms of it's more likely to happen again, right? In terms of the opportunity when you have a positive mindset. So your energy is going to be very different. So the opportunities are more likely to come your way because of, of how you carry yourself. So maybe you meet a manager and you're saying, yeah, we lost that, but you know what? I know that like we, we have it in us to get this the next time. I know that. And therefore that attitude in itself is going to uplift people, inspire people. And it's almost like the cart before the horse, you know, you, 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 you focus on creating the feeling and then um, the results sort of unfold. When you, when you get to that void, and I think probably a lot of people listening can maybe relate to it, we see it a little bit, especially in elite sports with the Olympics, when there's a talk of depression after achievements with medal winners, and they hit that, that high, and then it's exactly, as you mentioned, sort of a void feeling. What are your key lessons that you give the people for how to embrace that and maybe overcome that challenge? Well, as you mentioned with Olympians and elite athletes, they've started from an early age and they're, they're picked out as being high achievers. They're not trained to do anything else. All they know is their sport. And there can, there, there's so many people like them. And there's a fine line between success and failure. And nobody wants to know you when you're not doing well in, in those kind of sports. You're, you know, you're, you're not in the spotlight. So they don't know what to do next. They don't have any other skills that are transferable. So you really have to be planning ahead. You said before I got involved in running, I was martial arts with my sport and I would have done quite well in that. But then I kind of, with the running, things changed. I, I got an invite. Well, I found out about a race that was happening at the North Pole and Mark Pollock, who you might be familiar with. After I come back from the Sahara Desert, a friend introduced Mark to me uh, as Mark was training for a race in the Gobi Desert, similar to the one that I had done. And because I was now the local expert, because no, there wasn't really too many people who had done the Mark they saw back then, back in the early 2000s. So I gave Mark a bit of advice on training and he did a race with his friend Nick Wolf. And after he came back, we became friends. We did a bit of training. We were training the Phoenix Park one day and I told him about a race I'd heard about in that was going to happen at the North Pole. And we decided we were going to do that race. So we did a race at the North Pole. And then I thought to myself, very few people have been here and the running has got me there. So that's when I started to kind of think a bit more about running as being something I was going to do. Now, if I was to step, step back a little bit as well, I'd also done with the outdoors, I, I trained in survival techniques. If you're familiar with Ray Mears, he'd be on TV. I would have known him back in the 80s. I've been back and forth to him a few times. I trained in 
Arctic survival up in Swedish Lapland. I was fortunate enough at the time to be at the same place where the Swedish Army do their survival training. And I was with the head of survival training for the Swedish Army. So I got to spend two weeks up there living off the land in, you know, you had to build your own shelters, you had to fish, hunt, make forage, make your own snowshoes. And I, that, that to me was what I liked was the adventure. Then I heard about a race in the Yukon, which is just between northern Canada, just, just before you get to Alaska. And the race was along the Yukon River, headed from Whitehorse, the capital of Yukon, towards uh, Braybourne, 100 miles away. So that race, again, was self-sufficient, similar to the marathon they saw. And I just thought that might be an opportunity to use my Arctic survival skills, along with my in, you know, ability to, to cover a long distance, like in the marathon they saw. Took part in that race. That went very, very well. I said I'd also done the North Pole Marathon. And then I just thought to myself, maybe, you know, there seems to be a lot of these type races going on, different, different parts of the world. And I was then trying to decide on what I would do next. And I started to look at races in extreme environments. And that was kind of giving me a reason to travel somewhere. And then I got more into the running. So I wanted to complete the most, I set myself a goal then of running an extreme marathon on each of the seven continents. And I decided I was going to try and do it in less than seven years. And that's what then got me over this feeling of post-race depression. I always knew what I was going to do next. But something else I didn't do, I didn't use one of these future races as a safety net for when things were going tough during an event that I could say, well, I'll save myself. I, I won't endure i won't persevere and suffer during this race because i have something else to do so i'll just take it easier i'll drop out and i'll go and do the i'll just save myself for the next race i always look beyond the finish line of the race but when i was in the race the finish line was the only thing i thought of nothing else mattered the preparations jumping out to me here and I, that story about how you know going to the yukon but the what's jumping out here is the swedish survival training and you're just <laughs> You're just passing it off as if it's it's not too a big deal. Do you have a memory or a story you'd like to share with us about that? Because uh, maybe it's the snowshoes. What is it? Well, the head of the Swedish Army Survival School, his name is Lars Falt. And he, big man, and we were in the, it's called a lavu, like a wigwam, a Swedish tent. And we were sitting that, that of an evening. We might be spending the night there. So it might have been, one, two o'clock in the morning. It doesn't get totally dark. Dark enough so you, you wouldn't, uh, you'd still be able to see by moonlight. You wouldn't need a head towards. And when we were inside that, two o'clock in the morning, he said, if, if you want to experience Arctic survival, you would leave the warmth of this tent now and you go out and you would build a shelter. Do, this is, this is where a time when you have a choice. It's easy to do something when you've no other option, when you're back to the wall, easy to do something. But when you have a choice, that's when it becomes becomes difficult. And that's when you kind of build resilience and your, your kind of strength of character. So I left the tent and I went out and I dug a trench in the ground called a snow grave. And it might have taken me an hour or so. And I, I, when I finished that, I went off for a, a, a bit of a walk, lovely clear night. And I met him down by the lake. He was sitting on a, on a, a fallen tree, but he spotted me and he shouted over, Irish man, Irish man. I went over to him and he took a bottle of Jemison whiskey out of his inside pocket. And the two of us sat by the lake and we were drinking Jemison whiskey before I went back 
to my hole in the ground, got into my my sleeping bag, which was on uh, a deer skin, lay down on some fallen branches, and I forgot to put my boots inside my sleeping bag, and they were frozen solid the next morning. So I have a photograph of that. I can send it on to you. Holy God. The show is now. Not many people have that memory to use. You mentioned resilience and you mentioned something that's very interesting because when we think of people who are resilient, we often think of them in adverse times when they have no other choice, where only one thing is to overcome. And then we, when they do, we say they're resilient. But it's very interesting you mentioned that when you have a choice to avoid adversity, sometimes by choosing to go through it is when you truly build it. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yes. Well, I think resilience is something that can be practiced and trained. And that's where I think sport allows you to practice uh, resilience. So it's it's during times when things are really, really tough and you have the option of, of stopping because you know there's nobody forcing you to do these things. That's when it becomes easy. When you feel you're, you're not going to be achieve what you wanted to achieve in the race and i've seen it so many times and i've had some really really bad races one in particular i can remember was the 100 kilometer world championships over in italy and i we were on a 10 kilometer loop you had to do 10 times and there would have been a water state your own crew at a water station at 5k mark and then the start or 10k mark so i missed my water at one of the stops and that had a knock-on effect because because of the heat and I was badly dehydrated. I got to the point where I was passing blood and I was at maybe 80, 90K. I told my crew, look, at, I'm in, kind of in, in a bad way here. I'm not feeling any pain, but I know I'm dehydrated. So they said, well, look at all our scores for the team are in. So whatever you do doesn't matter as far as the team is concerned. So you, you can stop if you want. And when he said, if you want, and I was going to think, well, I don't want because I don't want to practice stopping. I don't want to practice giving in you get good at what you do the most. So I thought this is the time now to practice going on when I have an option of, of stopping. There's no need for me to keep going. But I thought, well, this will make it easier when I'm doing one of my 24-hour races, which go on for twice as long. So I went on to finish the race. Uh, said everything was nearly packed up. I think the crew were hoping that I, I would actually stop. But like I said, you don't want to practice giving in. I've never not finished the race. The running's brought you to some amazing... Have a look at you, the way you're dressed. And you can tell a lot by the maybe the footwear and the clothing somebody is wearing, whether they are athletic or if they are just someone who is trendy. And I would ask you for some recent performance indicators just to get an idea. I wouldn't make any assumptions. And I wouldn't want to, I suppose, uh, what's the word, be condescending. So I would let you maybe demonstrate in a way without doing too much. If I had you running on the track, I'd be talking to you as you go, I might ask you a question. And I could tell by your, your rate of breathing, how quickly you answer me, whether you're trying to impress me or whether I'm holding you back. So I can I can tell a lot by that. I'd look at you as I'm watching you warming up. I would do because, uh, a movement screening. Look how your your legs are moving. And you can you can pick it up very, very quickly because when somebody starts to move, you you start you, you kind of get an idea of of what their their sports are. Very easy to pick out a footballer with the way one of their legs might lift as high as the other might be trailing a bit. If you were a hurler, you might see the way one arm moves relative to the other arm. So there's there's little things I could kind of pick up, but I would I would get you to do less. I always would err on the side of caution. 
And I would also ask you what your goals are, what you're, what you're planning on doing, because it's about the athlete, not about the coach. I love that. And you've touched on the physical and the mental preparation and training. How much of a balance do you strike with that um, distribution and what would you focus on initially? Well, there's an overemphasis now on the mental side of things. And I think because it's a lack of understanding. So people talk about how mentally strong they are. But if you don't have the, the body, you know, the, the physical ability to actually do what needs to be done, your mental strength will only bring you to the breaking point and bring you to injury. And, you know, I think people are, are reading books by guys over in America, whatever, you know, about, uh, I don't want to go mentioning any names, but I, I can see it with, with, with a lot of young guys now and they're, they're talking about how strong they are and ultra running seems to be a buzzword and they're talking about how mentally strong they are and it's 90% mental. But if you haven't got that hundred, that, that physical side of it actually built up, it doesn't matter how mentally strong you are. You're, 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 you're going to just bring yourself to injury and setback after setback. And that will affect the mental side of things because you will start to, I suppose, it'll, it, it will make you kind of go, go in on yourself. So I think you have to train the physical. And while you're training the physical, that's when you train the mental side of things. It's like we mentioned, it's, it's the, the pushing through. The, it's, it's the going out to train when no when you don't have to, you know, there's, there's nobody watching you when they're keeping an eye on you. It's doing things when you don't need to do them, but it's doing the right thing at the, at the right time. And also through experience, you should recognize the difference between the pain of an injury or the pain of improvement. The pain of improvement is just something that when you kind of gone beyond where you've normally gone, but you've know it's not an injury. It's, it's a, a symmetrical pain whereby it's on both sides at the same time, whereby pain of an injury isolated in the one area. So you've got to know you stopped it. Is, is your mental strength telling you no pain, no gain, you should push through that. That's when you're going to get a big setback. So you've got to know those differences, but you need to do the physical and let that train the mental. Yeah, I'd say the it's almost like a natural hospitality that comes across that I don't think really exists anywhere else in the world still that you guys have here. So, for instance, one of my best mates in Toronto is another Aussie, and he was, before our wedding, he came over and he was tracking his Irish heritage. And so he just went to the town that his you know, great-great-grandfather was, was from and, and said the name. And ended up, someone took them into his house and I think they ended up staying for dinner and there is nowhere else in the world that someone would invite you into their house just because you showed up and said, oh, this is my surname. But it still exists here. Yeah, whereas that might be weird to some people. That just sounds like vintage vintage somewhere in Ireland. That, that happens all the time. It's yeah, like- yeah, exactly. Well, we have it, uh, you know, my, my wife's family own a hotel in Sligo and so there's so many people that just walk through the doors of the hotel and say, my last name is whatever. I've heard people from around here. Can you point me in the right direction? You know, like American tourists or something like that. And so, yeah, quite widespread. Into the coaching world, what do you bring from all these different places you've been? Obviously, born, grown up in Australia, and now spending lots of time either side of the Atlantic. How has all those different experiences culturally helped shape your work as a coach with coaches? Yeah, one of the reasons that I left Australia was 
I think we forget that we're a big desert island in the middle of nowhere. And so the one thing Australia lacks is a little bit of context just because we're so far away from everything. And so one of the reasons I left was I wanted to go and explore the world and, and see what it's actually like. And part of that is coaching as well, is when you go in and see the NBA locker room and, and see, you know, spend time with a GAA team here and, and, and actually not just hear stories about how they're doing things, actually go and see it and get your, your hands dirty. So I'm really fortunate now in that wherever I go in the world, I'm able to go and observe and, and speak to people on the ground that are getting their hands dirty, that are dealing with challenges. I've been really fortunate in that I absorb all that and it kind of comes back out in my coaching. So it's, it's like this rapid acceleration but it also feeds my interest in any team sport. Like I'm the kid that would sit there and watch cycling and rugby and Aussie rules and tiddlywinks, right? And I'd rather watch that than anything else. And so it feeds that for me as well. You're embarking on this journey to look around, to try and experience new, basically ways of doing things, new insights. How do you make sure that you're, sort of backing yourself, giving yourself the confidence that you can achieve in different lands and different areas and in different sports, even if you've tried jumping here, jumping there. What is it about Cody Royal that you back yourself to go and do that and give yourself the courage to take them steps? Yeah, it's a great question. It hasn't always been there. You know, like if you, even if you read the tone of my first book or others one, there's a real lack of confidence in the, the book. And so the reason that I, kind of developed the the storytelling that I did was because it's like here's what I think but here's kind of other people's stories so not my story I'm going to tell you someone else to validate it and so but actually by virtue of sharing all those stories developed a confidence in myself because people started to take an interest and I started to see that that validation that, that I was looking for and so that started that journey but then I'd say what really had it take off was when you really do boil things down, uh, team sport coaching is team sport coaching. The team invasion sports underneath the way that I interpret them, it, it's all the same. It's manipulating space and time with a team of people, defending your goal, attacking the, the opposition's goal and trying to score, whether that's basketball, netball, soccer, rugby, Aussie rules, lacrosse, and so really, when you walk into new environments, they're not new environments. At the base level, they are exactly the same. And there's human beings in there and uh, there's human beings that are coaching them and they have struggles. And uh, this is really where the tough stuff came from is what I wanted people to understand is foundationally, we're all struggling with the same things because we're human beings and we go through this lived experience. And so it's taken me... 10 years to get the confidence to, to understand those things, both about myself and then be able to walk into yeah, locker rooms and stand in front of groups and talk about them and things like that. So it wasn't always there, but I think I pieced it together and arrived at, we're all human. <laughs> when we're looking at players that really successful players and have made the move into coaching, and somebody that jumps out to mind close to home at the moment is Ronan O'Gara, who's made that transition and obviously just won the big cup for La Rochelle. What is it about O'Gara and other coaches that have excelled as players? And then why is it that some coaches who maybe try to 
make that move from player, don't quite make it? What do you look for as, as a coach of coaches? Yeah, this one's quite simple for me. It comes down to the mechanics of coaching versus the dynamics of coaching. The people that or the play, the former players that tend to fail, I think they have a perception of mechanics. They have really good mechanics of coaching. How far apart are my cones? Uh, the kind of things that we educate coaches on in badges. Um, and, and we tell them this is what you need to be successful. And if your cones are a little bit too far apart, it's not going to translate to the pitch. So if you focus there, that can get you so far. But ultimately, where the successful coaches land, and Ronan is one of these, you can see in the way that he talks and the language that he uses is quite far developed, is the dynamics, the human dynamics, the teams, the, the relationships between the players, the relationship between him and individuals, but also him and the group and how to motivate groups and uh, what caring means. He talks about caring and really caring. Like these are his words. He talks about really caring about people. When you're at that level, I think you can both navigate the ups and downs of motivation, uh, the ups and downs of the pain that comes with a season, the ups and downs of expectations, and you've probably got the mechanics of coaching ticked off anyway. So that's what I look for. Are you paying attention to the, the dynamics of the team rather than the X's and O's and the cones and when training blocks are? Yeah, I think building into dynamics of a team, we saw an example of one of the best cultures that we've observed from the outside anyway, Golden State Warriors recently be successful again. And it seems like they're quite a different franchise in in. American basketball than the other contenders at the moment who seem to look for stars that they can piece together. Whereas Golden State have a focus on drafting and developing young players and maybe focusing on ones that others have passed on, like Andrew Wiggins, who they've changed and was almost the second best player in the finals. Why do you think, just if you have an experience of it, why do you think they've got it so right? What are they doing in order to get these pieces together and make them part of the whole, make the synergistic effect huge compared to other teams? Yeah. I mean, the Wiggins one, obviously, being a, a Canadian or a, an adopted Canadian is huge for us. Um, and it's something that we knew was there, right? Because uh, we obviously have watched him closely grow up. Well, one of the things you, you talked about is I think Golden State and their players and their methodology all the way up, they have alignment. They seem to have alignment between the ownership, the general manager, the coach, all the way down to the players. And so that's a huge one organizationally is not many places are that aligned. They're, they're not on the same page. They might have a general manager who thinks that they're the, the golden piece, right? I talk about the God particle. So they might think that it's about, well, who have I drafted high or who have I uncovered that is more talented than their draft position? Or they might have a coach who's egotistical or an owner who just doesn't get it. So Golden State seems to be very just up and down all on the same page. So that's one thing, because if you've got harmony there, that's a big piece of the, the puzzle, particularly in quite complex environments like the NBA. But also just, uh, I think they put all their guys in positions to succeed. They draft them for particular reasons and they let them do those things. And, you know, again, we talk about the, the desire to be 
you know, autonomous and have competence and be able to show those things and the relatedness. And, and I think they, they nail all of those components together by allowing their guys to feel good because I'm a three-point shooter, so you let me shoot threes rather than trying to change someone and be like, oh, you can't dribble off the left and, and hit this fadeaway jumper. There's too many, I think, too many people trying to do tricky things. And I think they just let their, their people do what they do best, including Steve Kerr, clearly. He is just himself and he just does what he does. We often talk about like the r and and the kind of your authentic self. You touched on one of the hard truths there, God particle. Love the other ones, cohesion beats tactics, connection over correction. We've touched on elements already in the last couple of minutes. I think that's really important. A lot of the work we do here in Ireland, people are always asking us about needing forging stronger teams, more connection, more collaboration, bringing people together because we haven't been together what is it about all that stuff that we can really look at as to how to improve it? Where do you start? Where do we start and how can we get it better? Yeah, I talk in the book about seam work. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to start for any organization, regardless of what you're in, is the way that we build organizations is in these silos. And the bigger you get, the more siloed they become. And you know, marketing sits over here and you know, in sport, it's performance sits here and medical sits next to them, but kind of aren't them. And, and so we build these hierarchies and we, we put people in silos, but then there's no work across the seams in between all those silos. And so that's where I think we get stuck in terms of teamwork and collaboration and cohesion and, and real true team building is there's very rarely someone working on the seams between them. But that is the glue that holds organizations together and teams together. And so I think focusing on that work between organizations, whatever that looks like, obviously different resources mean you can do different things. But I think giving opportunities for either people to work across silos or, um, or understand different silos, understand different people within the organization is a good starting place for anyone. Cody, we, we kind of touched on it over our coffee uh, in the preamble before this. If we're doing that work and people are always interested in scoring us or quantitatively, what does that look like away from just the dialogue? How can we say, well, this is where you are in terms of togetherness. This is a new leadership group. You're newly formed, but we can bring it to this level. What does that process look like? And maybe how can you give someone some clarity as to you are currently here, we can bring you to here in terms of that seam work that you're touching on. I, I would actually advise against scoring it initially. I think that's maybe one of the mistakes that we make is we go to, and maybe this is indicative of the world right now, is trying to quantify every single thing all the time. Sometimes, and particularly in leadership, you just have to let the, the magic happen um, and believe in it for a little while. Like go and do the work don't worry about moving the needle straight away. As you go through that, organically measures start to appear that are more fitting for the thing that you're actually trying to measure anyway. Uh, and so, again, I, I understand why we're inclined that way. And I understand business and sport and everything is about measurement and winning and all these different things. But sometimes you just have to let humans do magic and trust that it's going to result in, in what you want at the end. And so I think even if it's agreed, we're not going to measure this for the next quarter, we're just going to do the work and then let's get together next quarter and see if we can come up with 
you know, once we've spoken to our people, once we've done the work and maybe reorged a little bit and made some new uh, connections, then let's get back together and decide how we're going to move forward with something to measure. When you're embodying that, is there a risk that there could be maybe organizational or a team cognitive dissonance that we feel like we're all working very hard? We, we're really putting shoulder to the wheel here. We're all coming in, showing up every day. But overall, it's actually it's embodying a culture of fatigue versus a culture of excellence. And it's really pushing people to give a lot of effort, pushing workload, but not looking at the results. Is there a risk without measuring them initial phases that you focus too much on, okay, subjective, I think we're doing well here? Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, it, it's all a change management process, right? And so that's got to be part of the what you factor in as a risk is there becomes some, some cognitive dissonance. And I think what you'll find, though, is... The reason that there is generally struggle is everyone's squeezing too tight, including leadership. And so the, the, the nature of saying, look, we're just going to get a few things right, we're going to create some cohesion and we're going to create some belonging and we're going to do some cultural work and we're going to upgrade some of these things, generally there's going to be a sigh of relief more than anything because the reason teams tend to struggle is everyone's holding on so tight and they're just white knuckling it. And so, I, yeah, what I've seen happen way more often than not is everyone goes, ah, oh, okay, so I can just be good at what I'm good at for a little while and we'll get back to, um, you know, some straightening out of, of what we're measuring later on. I know you speak about in your books about innovation through people. So you're looking at that. So if organizations are looking and the movement kind of now at the moment is looking at metaverse, is looking at augmented reality, virtual reality, and that seems to be what innovation is tied with. We, we, it's almost synonymous with tech moving forward as opposed to people. Why do you think we've missed out on focusing on innovation through individuals and getting people to lead that? Yeah. So I wrote Where Others Won't in 2017 because I, I spotted back then that innovation was seen as product, right? And even before product, it was... It was infrastructure, right? It was always a faster factory, right? Faster assembly line was seen as innovation. And then it moved to product and it's kind of still stuck there. And now you're right, it's, it's skipped over people and kind of gone to the metaverse again. Um, but those are, again, I, I think there's a, a misconception of that is still just people. And um, ultimately, what I keep coming back to is, yeah, they are the source of, of innovation. The iPhone didn't create itself. Human beings designed, built all of it, right? Didn't just materialize. And so when you do strip it back, there are people behind that. And so that's why, yeah, I think we, we do miss a beat there. But the organizations, sporting, business, otherwise, that understand that it is people behind that and can look at how do we set our people up for success and to innovate more rapidly, they're still going to be the ones that get ahead because technology has leveled the playing field to the point where I think the, the term that I use is you can spend millions and years you know, developing this new software package and within two days of launch, some kid in their basement in Russia has copied and done cheaper than what you've done, right? And so, so yeah, so you've blown through all this. So, but that's what I mean. The people are the innovation. And so what, what 
They can always replicate the products. They can't replicate the people. Moving away from that a little bit and talking about the person, we're talking about the person in the room here and, and coaching. And you've learned so much about coaching. We're asking about coaching. And, and that's really why we also wanted to talk to you today. How has your philosophy changed over the years? And kind of what does it look like today? And, and kind of what are the values that even underpin that for you as a coach, working with other coaches and helping them understand themselves better? Look, I've arrived here not by design, really. I was a head coach until uh, about a year ago and then stopped coaching my team uh, off the back of writing the tough stuff and started working directly with coaches. And, and again, that came off the back of the book. It wasn't designed to do that. I wasn't trying to become a consultant. I wasn't trying to work with coaches. But um, it felt a little bit divine. You know, the heavens opened up and the sun kind of shined down and said, this is an opportunity for you. And and so really the, the way that I coach coaches is no different to how I was coaching the, the players that I worked with, the team that I had, Team Canada. Um, you're trying to create the best version of themselves, whatever that looks like. And so I probably differ from a lot in this in that I don't have a process. I don't, I'm not, there's no 12-week plan. There's no, you know, go through these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's no tests. There's no, I walk into coaching relationships with, fortunately for me, some of the best coaches in the world and say, how do we get you better that's authentically you? Not become me. You shouldn't have to coach like me. Uh, and build plans around those individuals. So similar to what we were just talking about is how do we innovate around that person? How do we set that person up so that coaching performance is central to their life rather than just being on the hamster wheel of what they've either seen previously or what they think coaching is? And, and that often comes with, you know, tough conversations, uh, reframing of what coaching is, not just for them, but for the organization. So, you know, one example is I talk a lot about coaches needing sleep, right? They're, they're high performance knowledge workers. So they've got to protect their brains, which means getting sleep. So what does that mean? The coach isn't going to be in the building as much as they historically are. They're not going to be in the office watching film until 3 a.m., they're going to be at home cooking dinner for their, their children and wife and then uh, go to bed. So that's like an organisational thing that everyone needs to understand. I can't just pop into the coach's office and talk like I used to, right? And so there's a big change management process that comes after that. But foundationally, it's all uh, the same coaching because you would go through that with a player. Where, do you, where are you currently? Where do you want to be? How do we have some conversations so that everything aligns with, with what you're trying to do and, and make some, uh, some changes around that? And so, uh, yeah, I've been fortunate that I've been able to carry my 15 years of head coaching experience through into um, now working solely with head coaches, solely at the elite level, but the coaching kind of mechanisms underneath are the same. I think something you're touching on there is about being authentic and self-identity. And something we've noticed on your Twitter feed, on your Twitter bio, it's Ollie's dad and Stephanie's husband, first and foremost. Yeah. Was that always part of Cody Royal's core identity or has it changed? Would a 25-year-old or 22-year-old Cody Royal say that first on his Twitter bio, do you think? No, no way. No way. And that's there because it's a little bit of a statement because I've, I've written about it. Uh, and 
But no, definitely not. And I think we all need to be on that journey and we all need to arrive at that destination when we're ready for it. And it's taken me a long time to be ready for it. And I described to you earlier about a lack of confidence in my first book, for instance. And so there's no way that I really understood who I was or the value that Cody Royal brought to the world at that point. But it's arrived in the subsequent years when I've been ready for it. So, yeah, I think without pushing people into it, I think you can kind of insinuate that, you know, you should be heading in this direction if you can and identifying yourself as a father, son, husband, wife, sister, brother, whatever it may be first. And then that leads you to further discoveries about who you are. But um, yeah, there's no way 25-year-old, 25-year-old Cody was still trying to be an AFL player. So <laughs> that would have been that would have been his Twitter bio back then. Did you did you use any tools or was there any moments where you that became in aligned with what Thanks very much for listening. You heard from Mike Brown, Fiona Brennan, John O'Regan, and Cody Royal. Some of the takeaways from today's episode, it's all based around learning. We looked at learning in different environments, harsh environments like Arctic survival training, John mentioned, but also exposing yourself to new jobs, new roles like Cody did when he was trying to learn how to be a better coach. We also learned from looking back and reflecting on your past, how did others that you admire inform your learning and what were they doing that created success achievement and can you take pieces of information from them think Connor O'Shea's influence on Mike Brown Fiona talked about something that's very important being in the moment being present and creating stillness in order to learn more to understand how you can develop and to take every bit of learning that you can from your experiences and the environment that you find yourself in finally looking over our mistakes, things that haven't gone wrong for us, are certain ways that we can use to enhance going forward. Kobe Bryant mentions that when he loses, he loved it because he used to think the opponent has given him clues on how to get better. Can we look back and find the clues of how to be better ourselves? Yes, we can because we all fail. We all make mistakes. We need to embrace them. We've got some amazing guests coming up, such as James Lachlan, high-performance leadership expert and coach to high performers. We're going to have Dr. Nick Holton, expert in human flourishing and peak performance coach. Caleb Gartner, founding partner of 18 Coffees, who worked with President Obama, very much a change agent and author of No Point B. We will speak with Professor Luke O'Neill, who specialized in immunology based here in Dublin, and he's spoken and extensively written on the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also very excited about the upcoming dialogue we're going to have with Mark Whittle, life coach and host of the Take Flight podcast. Thanks again for listening. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.